Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 35, Leviticus chapter 23, the conclusion. Leviticus chapter 23 is where the seven biblical feasts are ordained and explained. And we've covered the first four of them thus far, the three spring feasts of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, and then that first summer feast called Shavuot in Hebrew, known better in Christendom as Pentecost. Now we arrive at the three fall feasts. And we've looked at the first of those, Yom Teruah, which is better known in our day as Rosh Hashanah, or Jewish New Year. Now, this day falls on the first day of the seventh month of the Hebrew religious event calendar. Um, ten days later is Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and the one we began to discuss before I listened into last week was Sukkot, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. Now we're going to reread a small portion of Leviticus 23 to kind of establish the context for today's lesson. So turn your Bibles to Leviticus 23, 33. Adonai said to Moses, tell the people of Israel on the 15th, uh, 15th day of the seventh month is the feast of Sukkot for seven days to Adonai. On the first day is to be a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. For seven days you are to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. On the eighth day you are to have a holy convocation and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. It is a day of public assembly. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. These are the designated times of Adonai that you are to proclaim as holy convocations and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai, a burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice, and drink offerings, each on its own day. Besides the Shabbats of Adonai, your gifts, all your vows, all your voluntary offerings that you give to Adonai. But on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you, are gathered, when you have gathered the produce of the land, you are to observe the festival of Adonai seven days. The first day is to be a complete rest, and the eighth day is to be a complete rest. On the first day you are to make, uh, take choice fruit, palm fronds, thick branches, river willows, and celebrate in the presence of Adonai your God for seven days. You are to observe it as a feast to Adonai seven days in the year. It is a permanent regulation, generation after generation. Keep it in the seventh month. You are to live in Sukkot for seven days. Every citizen of Israel is to live in a Sukkah. So that generation after generation, you will know that I made the people of Israel live in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. For I am Adonai your God. Then Moses announced to the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai. The first thing established in these verses today is the date of the Sukkot festivals to be the 15th day of the seventh month known as Tishri. Further, it's to be a seven day long event and then after the seven days on an eighth day is to be a holy convocation, a meeting together of God's people to worship. Now in verse 37, we're introduced to another part of the Sukkot celebration ritual called in Hebrew Nesach. And it means libation, or as it's also often called, a drink offering. I don't like that term, because it really conjures up the wrong mental image of what's going on here. The libation offering usually consists of water or wine, sometimes it's both. And the one mentioned here is a water libation. Now, without going into all the detail of the actual ritual... Let me just say that water is put into a special vessel and then it's poured out by a priest at the temple during a special ceremony. Now, what's the meaning 
of the water libation. It's very simple, really, recalling that all of these feasts, feasts are agricultural-based, right? and that the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, occurs at the final harvest of the season, before new crops are planted. The water libation is connected with a plea to Jehovah for rain. Right? The, the rainy season in Israel is generally late October to March. Rain was key. The Israelites did not practice irrigation. Okay. If the rains didn't come, then the spring harvest would be very poor. Okay. The water libation occurred every day during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, as very little is said in the Torah of just how the water libation ritual was to be accomplished, traditions were developed on its proceedings. And of course, those traditions changed a little bit over time. Now, because of something I want to show you shortly about a story concerning Jesus, I want to briefly explain the water libation tradition as it was observed in his day. The priest would take a special vessel down to the pool of Siloam and fill it with about a quart of water. In the meantime, some other priests would go to another pool of water where willows grew. Now, they gathered the willows and laid these long willow branches against the sides of the great altar of burnt offering such that they extended above it and formed a bit of a canopy over the top. Two different pools of water were used in this ceremony for a very practical reason. The pool of Siloam was quite large. It was about a half an acre in size. And it was a plastered pool fed by a man-made aqueduct. People washed their clothing there. And they filled their water jugs for drinking and cooking. Because this pool had been plastered, it was very much like a large modern municipal swimming pool. So no vegetation grew in it. Therefore, in order to obtain these willow branches, a group of priests had to go to another source of water that was natural where vegetation did grow. Now, it's possible that that source was a substantial stream that at one time flowed through the uh, Kidron and Hinnom valleys that bordered the city walls, but it may well be that, that they had to go all the way to the Jordan River, several days of travel away to have those willow branches brought to the temple for the ceremony. In any case, the high priest would dip his golden pitcher into the pool of Siloam and then proceed to a well-known gate in the high walls that surrounded the holy city, the water gate. It was not named after a hotel in Washington, D.C. But interestingly, it was the other way around. Um, and of course, it got its name because of this ceremony. It was where the water was brought through. The high, the, the high priest would wait at this gate until some Levites sounded three loud trumpet blasts. Then, that was his signal to proceed on up to the great altar. And in front of large crowds, he would pour out the water while saying in a loud voice, Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, isn't that something? Right, that's from Isaiah 12.3. As the high priest poured out the water libation, another priest would pour wine out of a pitcher. When that was done, music was played by the Levites and then the crowd would recite Psalm 18.25. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. That was from 
Psalm again 118.25. This song was called the Hosanna or the Hoshana. Right? And during this song, scores of priests would march around the, the, the uh, altar waving palm branches. And I hope some of this conjures up a memory among you of a happening in the New Testament that had all of these same elements. Now I have mentioned repeatedly that practically every scene in the Bible, the New Testament in particular, of Yeshua being in Jerusalem had to do with the Messiah, Messiah being there as a part of a pilgrimage for one of the three pilgrimage feasts. After all, Jerusalem, uh, Jesus lived quite a long ways to the north, up in the Galilee, far from Jerusalem. So, there had to be a good reason for him to go there. Right? Not only that, but Yeshua didn't have a lot of regard for the priesthood and the tradition-based Judaism that had now ruled every aspect of a Jew's life. So unlike that vast majority of Jews in that era, he wasn't just itching to hang around the temple. Okay. So let's take a look at one of those times he was in Jerusalem because it's centered on the feast we're currently looking at, the Feast of Tabernacles. So turn your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 7. Now I'm a bit of a stickler and making sure that we have the entire context when we study God's Word. So we're going to take the time to read tonight this entire chapter. So if you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1338. Okay, John chapter 7. We're going to read it all. It's a long chapter, but it is well worth it. After this, Yeshua traveled around in the Galilee, intentionally avoiding Judah because the Judeans were out to kill him. But the festival of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, in Judah was near, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judah so that your disciples can see the miracles that you do. For no one wants to become, uh, no, for no one who wants to become known acts in secret. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers spoke this way because they had not put their trust in him. Yeshua said to them, My time has not yet come, but for you, any time is right. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me, because I keep telling it how wicked its ways are. You, go on up to the festival. As for me, I'm not going up to the festival now, because the right time for me has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed on in the Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the festival, he too went up, not publicly, but in secret. And at the festival, the Judeans were looking for him. Where is he? they asked. And among the crowds, there was much whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. But others said, no, he's deceiving the masses. However, no one spoke about him openly for fear of the Judeans. Not until the festival was half over did Yeshua go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Judeans were surprised. How does this man know so much without having studied? They asked. So Yeshua gave him an answer. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or I speak from my own. A person who speaks on his own is trying to win praise for himself, but a person who tries to win praise for the one who sent him is honest. There's nothing false about him. Didn't Moses give you the Torah? Yet not one of you obeys the Torah. Why are you out to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd answered. Who's out to kill you? Yeshua answered them, I did one thing. And because of this, all of you are amazed. Moses gave you a Brit Milah, circumcision. Not that it came from Moses, but from the patriarchs. And you do a boy's Brit Milah on Shabbat. If a boy is circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the Torah of Moses will not be broken... Why are you angry with me just because I made a man's whole body well on the Sabbath? 
Stop judging by surface appearances and judge the right way. Some of the Jerusalem people said, Isn't this the man they're out to kill? Yet, here he is speaking openly, and they don't say anything to him. It couldn't be, could it, that the authorities have actually concluded that he is the Messiah? Surely not. We know where this man comes from, but when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he comes from. Whereupon Yeshua, continuing to teach in the temple courts, cried out, Indeed, you do know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come on my own. The one who sent me is real, but him you don't know. I do know him, because I am with him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. However, many in the crowd put their trust in him and said, When the Messiah comes, will he do more miracles than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about Yeshua, so the head priest and the Pharisees sent some of the temple guards to arrest him. And Yeshua said, I will be with you only a little while longer than I will go away to the one who sent me. You will look for me and not find me. Indeed, where I am, you cannot come. And the Judeans said to themselves, Where is this man about to go that we can't find him? Does he intend to go to the Greek diaspora and teach the Greek-speaking Jews? And when he says, You will look for me and not find me. Indeed, where I am, you cannot come. What does he mean? Now, on the last day of the festival, Hoshana Rabbah, Yeshua stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him keep coming to me and drinking. Whoever puts his trust in me, as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from his inmost being. Now, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who he trusted in him were to receive later. The Spirit had not yet been given, because Yeshua had not yet been glorified. Now, on hearing these words... Some people in the crowd said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But others said, How can the Messiah come from the Galilee? Doesn't the Tanakh say that the Messiah is from the seed of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So the people were divided because of him. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. The guards came back to the head priest and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? And the guards replied, No one ever spoke the way this man speaks. You mean you've been taken in as well? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the authorities trusted him? Any of us Pharisees? No. These Amharats, these people of the land, do. They do. But do they, they know nothing about the Torah. They're under a curse. Nicodemus, the man who had gone to Yeshua before and was one of them, said to them, Our Torah doesn't condemn a man, does it, until after hearing from him and finds out what he's doing? They replied, You aren't from the Galilee too, are you? Study the Tanakh. See for yourself that no prophet comes from the Galilee. Then they all left, each one to his own home. It's quite a story, really. Verse 2 says that it was at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, so it was early fall, about 30 A.D. Yeshua was in his hometown region of Galilee and he was very reluctant to go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was in the province of Judea. And it says the Jews were seeking to kill him. Actually, Where it says that Jews were seeking to kill him, that's a little misleading if that's what your version says. What it actually says is that the Judeans were seeking to kill him. In other words, it was only certain Jews, those who lived in the province of Judea, Judeans, who were against him. Not so much the Jews who lived in the other areas. In Yeshua's day... It was much more usual, and you see examples of it in John chapter 7, for Jews from the Galilee to be called Galileans. Jews from Samaria were called 
Samarians or Samaritans in English, and Jews from Judea were called, appropriately, Judeans. You have to pay attention to that. It's telling us something. Jesus was not a Judean. He was a Galilean. Galileans didn't much like Judeans. Judeans really didn't care for Galileans, and neither the Judeans nor the Galileans had any use for the Samaritans. Samaritans didn't much like anybody. At this time in history, Judaism was very fractured, generally along territorial boundaries, but also according to political beliefs and family bloodlines. The Galileans were a long way from the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. So they were less affected by the religious politics and the intellectual elite who represented the ruling authority of the Jewish religion because their power base was in Jerusalem. You know, it's a lot like it is in the USA today where we talk about red states and blue states. Blue states generally meaning politically liberal, red states meaning politically conservative. Okay. And in general we find that a closer a state is to Washington, D.C., the more liberal it is and the more interested it is in the finer points of politics. The further away from the center of government, like in the Midwest, the people are less concerned with politics, less impressed with the so-called intellectual elite. They just want to live simple lives, practice their beliefs in basic ways. It was just like that in the Holy Land in Jesus' day. Galileans were a lot like people living in Kansas. Judeas, Judeans were more like New Yorkers. Okay. But despite the great differences and disagreements, while the Galileans still recognized Jerusalem as their religious capital, the Samarians had taken the drastic step of setting up their own separate brand of Judaism. The Sumerians had, for all practical purposes, seceded from the religious system that was centered in Jerusalem. They had established a separate priesthood. They had their own high priest. They had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, at which they sacrificed using their own temple altar. I tell you all this so that you can understand that to lump all Jews together in Christ's day and to say that the Jews did this and the Jews did that and the Jews believed this. This is so overly simplistic that it just is wrong and inaccurate. You can't get any kind of a reasonable picture from thinking like that. It's very akin to the way people in foreign countries look at New York City as the typical, as rather the stereotypical American city representing the average American in our cultural lifestyle and in our attitudes. When in fact, we who live elsewhere know that New York City is much more the exception to the rule than the rule in America. That's no offense against New York. It's just a, just a reality. John 7.14 tells us that somewhere in the middle days of the Feast of the Tabernacles, Yeshua was teaching at the temple, so one would expect he observed the law of Leviticus 23, and he made a pilgrimage to the temple for Sukkot. Some of the Judeans, residents of Judea, who heard him speaking asked, as it's recorded in verse 15, how is it that such an uneducated person as this, I mean a Galilean for Pete's sakes, right, how could he know such things that he was teaching? I mean, he'd never been to one of the rabbinical schools. Goodness knows he wasn't. Those were all in Jerusalem. Right? Why did he assume he was so uneducated? Again, he was a Galilean. And the only place that one could get a good education, which, by the way, for anybody was a religious education, was one of the many rabbinical schools, hundreds of them actually, 
located in Jerusalem and its surroundings. No good Galilean would ever show up at one of those schools. Such was the distrust and dislike between Judean Jews and Galilean Jews. The Judean Jews in Jerusalem actually became the minority for a few days because this was the time of the pilgrimage feast of tabernacles. Jews from all over Asia, from the diaspora, from all over the Roman Empire came. As, of course, Jews from all over the Holy Land, from Galilee, even a few from Samaria who didn't agree with the Samarian religious authorities break with the Jerusalem Temple Authority. Most people who lived in the Holy Lands were fully aware of this Yeshua fellow. And that he was one of those disgusting Galileans. Now, we can know this because it says so in verse 28 when Yeshua says to the crowd, You both know me and where I'm from. He was well known. He had his admirers. He had his detractors. Some Jews had already come to believe he was Messiah. Others thought the whole idea was ridiculous. Primarily because in their minds there was no way the Messiah could have possibly come from the Galilee. Still others thought he was a danger and preferred he go away by whatever means. As it says in verse 43, there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And of course that division we see in the Gospels is still present today as a result of his coming. Now I could spend a lot longer with this chapter, but I just want to show you a couple more things. And keep in mind that all of this is happening within the context of Jesus participating in the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 37 it says the following. Now on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles was the grand finale. Tradition even gave that last day a special name, Hoshana Rabbah. On that last day, all the rituals were exaggerated and expanded. The particular one I want to focus on is the water libation ceremony because on all the other days of the feast, the high priest came through the water gate with that golden vessel full of water taken from the pool of Siloam. His signal to enter was what? Three trumpet blasts. But on the last day, the Levites blew seven trumpet blasts and repeated that three times. The crowds would wait in great anticipation of that moment in which the feast was being drawn to a close. The high priest then solemnly carried that last golden pitcher of water up the several steps to the altar. He waited until the crowd quieted and gave him all their attention. And then with great drama, in those beautiful robes, he stood there. He lifted that water libation vessel. He poured out its contents for the last time. It wouldn't be done again for a year. And it was at that very moment, as the last drops of water were draining from that golden pitcher, that Jesus turned to the multitude there in the temple area and yelled out, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He really knew how to pick his times. (laughs) You see, most sayings of Jesus can and must be identified with some context that's going on around him in order for us to grasp its meaning. He didn't do these things in a vacuum. You can imagine this sudden and awkward silence of the crowds, the stunned and very angry priests, the offended Pharisees that we just read about in John. Yeshua had used the biggest event on the biggest day of the biggest feast at the climactic water libation ritual to proclaim himself God, the source of living water. He sealed his fate right then and there, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now let's get back to Leviticus 23. 
One of the interesting commands God gives to the people is that they're to live in Sukkot, booths, during the feast, during the full time of this feast. These open air shelters could be constructed in any number of ways, and so they too became subject to rabbinical traditions. The reason for making his people live in a sukkah, sukkot is just plural, the plural of sukkah, was to remind them of the 40 years they lived in temporary shelter in the wilderness. Today in Israel, you can see any number of ways people build the various sukkot, and from simple to very elaborate. They even hang brightly colored glass balls and other flashy items. They'll string lights right from the roof of the sukkah, much like is done with a Christmas tree. Now, generally, people no longer live seven days in those sukkah. For those who even bother to observe the holy days, they will eat. Sometimes the children will sleep inside those shelters, but that's usually about the extent of it. I want to point out something important to you. The Torah has very little to say about just how to observe these feasts. In fact, the Torah has very little to say about just exactly how to go about most of the God-ordained festivals and observances, particularly after you remove the sacrificial rituals from them. It's rules made by men that make most of these observances appear fairly uniform and that frankly often cause a lot of arguments. Okay, that goes for Shabbat as well. Yehovah and Torah commands really very little of us. And it says by leaving out so many details that we have great latitude about how we can observe these holy days. But that's entirely different from whether or not we choose to observe them or not observe them. It's a whole different matter. That we don't have the choice as far as I'm concerned. Further, when to observe these days is quite clear, notwithstanding some disagreement over calendar issues. Now, while I don't like the notion of giving up one set of wrong-minded Gentile Christian traditions for a new set of wrong-minded Jewish traditions, there is certainly nothing wrong with establishing traditions. That's fine. And the Jewish people have given us some awfully good and well-established starting points for our observances. So many of the Jewish traditions should not really be thrown out any more than all Christian traditions should just automatically be thrown out. But traditions, Jewish or Christian, aren't God's commands. So, as you as a family or we as a group work out our understanding of Torah and how it ties in with our faith in Messiah Yeshua, understand that we have much latitude in establishing the how but not the whether or the when of things like the biblical feasts. So let's not be judgmental or critical towards one another about it all. Rather, let's use that latitude to be creative, but reverent and true to the God-ordained meaning of each holy occasion. Let's use these biblical feasts ordained by God to replace these tired and worn man-made days that, that we have declared holy, but God hasn't. Now that you better understand the physical side of the Feast of Tabernacles, what's the spiritual aspect of it, especially from a prophetic sense? Sukkot portends the setting up of the Millennial Kingdom when Christ brings the full harvest of believers before His Father. It's the final ingathering of the people of the Kingdom of God. It's the last opportunity for anyone alive at that time to acknowledge Yeshua's Lordship. This event's ahead of us, but not too far, I think. Now, we're told that we don't know the day. In fact, Yeshua doesn't even know the day that the final ingathering will occur. 
Yet he says that we can know the season for many things that are still future to us. And I'm beginning to think that by using the word season, he was actually actually alluding to the fact that the biblical feasts being agriculturally based occur in real and specified seasons, summer, spring, fall, And therefore, as we now understand the inherent prophetic nature of the biblical feast, we can know which feast represent his return. Since the spring feast had been fulfilled with his execution and his resurrection, and the summer feast of Shavuot was fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit, it leaves nothing but the three fall feasts to play out. So it's really hard to see the season of his return as being anything other than literally the fall season of the year. Now, the prophets... By by the way, let me make something clear with that statement. It's going to be the fall season in Israel. For those who have ever lived below the equator, you know that it's all reversed. Okay? So... Is going to is going to naturally be the fall season for Israel, not somewhere else. Now the prophets tell us that the signal for the final ingathering of the Lord's people for his to fill up his kingdom is when the Jews come back home, and that perfectly fits the pattern of the Feast of Tabernacles. For days and days before the start of the feast, in preparation of the feast, people begin their pilgrimage to Jerusalem from all over. Only once there did the feast begin. It's like that now. The Jews are coming back to Israel more every day. The pilgrimage is underway. The only thing we really don't know for sure is when that final feast of ingathering will start, but I'll bet my boots that it will occur on the Feast of Tabernacles. I just don't know what year. After all, every other major act of Christ and his ministry precisely coincided with a biblical feast. From his death on Passover day to his entering the tomb on the first day of the Feast of Matzah to his rising on the Feast of First Fruits and then the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Shavuot, Pentecost. The next major event ahead of us is the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, or we now call it Rosh Hashanah, a call to a holy convocation. In this case, a call to war. Okay. When Christ takes returns to take the title deed to the planet Earth away from the evil one. Quickly on the heels of that event, of course, is the Feast of Tabernacles, the entering into the millennium. Now, interestingly, we're also told that the Feast of Tabernacles will continue on through the millennium. Now, we read about that in Zechariah. A prophecy about the last days and the transition into the thousand year reign of Yeshua. Zechariah 14.16 says this. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem. Doesn't sound like there's going to be a whole lot. Will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain for them. But maybe since we're going to be doing this in the millennial kingdom, maybe we ought to get a jump start on learning how to do it. Now. Now before we move on to Leviticus 24, which will happen next week, I'd like to show you something that I think is both exciting and really quite sobering. Now, I told you earlier that the procedure for the grand finale of the Feast of the Tabernacles was that before, key word, before the high priest entered the temple grounds, that the Levites would blow the trumpet on that final day seven times, 
right? They blow seven trumpets, rather, three times. Seven trumpets, three times for a total of 21. One of the reasons that I'm convinced that Yeshua will return on the fall feast is those 21 trumpet blasts. In the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 8, the Lord begins to pour his wrath out over the entire planet. There is a series of seven judgments, then a pause, then seven more judgments, then a pause, and then the final seven judgments lead up to the return of Messiah and the battle of Armageddon. Notice that we have three series of seven judgments exactly matching the three series of seven trumpet blasts that ushers the high priest into the temple grounds. Also notice that in the book of Revelation, it's after these 21 judgments that Yeshua, who is our high priest, makes his entry onto the scene and leads to, ta- to him taking his place in the temple as our king. Let me point out something else as well because it directly ties to the fall feasts. To announce the return of Messiah, we're told that he will arrive with a shout. That's spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4.15. It says this, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Then the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now this event is called the what? The rapture by evangelical Christians. And there's been all kinds of speculations on just when this will happen. These speculations go by a number of different names, and it's all got to do with its timing. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, others. I'm going to speak briefly on that in a moment, but first I want to continue with this key word, shout. Notice that 1 Thessalonians 4.16 associates this shout that associates the descent of Messiah with the trumpet of God, which is the voice of the archangel. Okay. So this shout has something to do with the noise of a trumpet. The Hebrew word for shout is ruah. R-U-A. Ruah. Now the first feast of the three fall feasts in the Bible is called Yom Te Ruah. Yom Te Ruah. Calling that day Rosh Hashanah, as it's done now, is kind of a nickname. It's not used in the Bible. And it also gives the day an additional meaning. Yom Te Ruah means... The day of the trumpet blasts. Or, in the way they would have spoken it then, the day of the trumpet shouts. Or Feast of Trumpets for short. In fact, of the three or four specifically named kinds of trumpet or shofar blasts in the Bible, one of them is called the Te Ruah. And it means precisely to shout. The Feast of Trumpets occurs two weeks before the Feast of Sukkot. Since we are told in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that the Messiah will will return with a shout, with a ruah, and that shout is directly connected to the trumpet of God, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that this shout this ruah is a trumpet blast, not a shout like a bunch of people making a big bunch of noise. That's not what it's talking about. And it says so. It says a shout, the trumpet of God, the voice of the archangel. Okay. Further, since the shout, the te ruah, 
announces the return of Christ, and since the Feast of Trumpets occurs just days before the Feast of Tabernacles, I feel certain that 1 Thessalonians is referring to the day of the Feast of Trumpets. Okay. So the Bible shows us that the procedure for the return of Messiah and the entry into the Millennial Kingdom follows precisely the pattern for the three fall feasts. First, there is the Ruah, the trumpet shout. Then there are three sets of seven judgments, and then Christ returns. Okay. Now, this doesn't agree doctrinally with some of the evangelical Christians who see a pre- or mid-tribulation time frame rapture. But frankly, I really don't think that timetable holds water at all. Okay? It violates every God-ordained pattern established in the Bible, and certainly nowhere does the Bible say anything about Christians avoiding the tribulation. This is just a hope. What it says is that God will sh cut short the divine judgments that he's going to pour out upon the whole world or no living thing would continue to exist on this rock that we call earth. Further, we have to understand that there's a vast difference between tribulation and God's wrath. They're not the same things. Okay? The tribulation spoken of in the Bible has nothing to do with God's wrath being poured out, tribulation is about mankind's evil running amok. Okay? Tribulation is about men doing terrible things to other men through wickedness. Tribulation is not an act of God, per se. It's an act of men. Okay? God's wrath, on the other hand, are divine acts of judgment brought about by God's spiritual agents, in this case, his angels. It is God-inspired punishments upon the earth and its inhabitants. Thus, we have God's angels going about crushing the planet with these three sets of seven supernatural judgments that are often called the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. When God finally gives that order. The biblical pattern since the book of Genesis is that God's people don't escape man-made tribulations. But we do escape his divine wrath. God's people, defined as those who are in fellowship with him, don't escape evil earthly rulers or being martyred for our faith. But never does God pour his wrath out on the innocent right along with the guilty. God does not destroy his people right along with his enemies. Okay. Therefore, while I don't claim to know the exact timing of all these end times events or the year or any such thing, okay, it seems incredulous to me that Christians would escape troubles caused by evil men. It has always been that people in proper fellowship with the Lord get harmed and killed. Most of the New Testament writers died awful deaths. Missionaries are regularly killed. All over this world today, Christians are being tortured and murdered for their faith. But we're so insulated from it over here, we just don't even know it. See, it's just that the tribulations... Man, pouring out his own evil against other men, are going to just keep getting worse until God determines now's the time to act. What believers will escape is the destructive outpouring of God's 21 judgments upon the earth, where we will not be treated to his wrath. So it seems to me That somewhere in the coming years, when evil gets completely out of control, but just before God's fury is spilled out over the earth and all of its inhabitants, the rapture will happen in one form or another, and believers will be whisked away.
I also think, and I want to make it clear that this is my opinion, okay, that those 21 judgments are going to come very rapidly. Beginning on Yom Te Ruah. The first day of the seventh month by the Hebrew calendar, and they will end by the Feast of Tabernacles a mere 15 days later. Why could it not be that God's wrath begins on Yom Teruah, if necessary, on one year, and then spread out over a longer period of time? That's possible too. But I don't think so. I don't believe that will happen. Because it would break the biblical pattern. Yeshua was killed on Passover. He went into the tomb the next day on the uh, Feast of Matzah. And then he was raised from the dead on first fruits. And 50 days after that, the Holy Spirit came. Not a year later. Not the next one. This all happened in succession. Rapid succession. In the same year. There is no reason to think the prophetic fulfillment of the fall feast is going to get stretched out over multiple years. Why? Why Why would we think that? It makes for a good story. It sells a lot of books. Right? I'm convinced they'll all be fulfilled in the same way the spring and summer feasts were fulfilled. I'm equally convinced that the reason for many of the end times doctrines that we see today that require a very healthy helping of allegory and stretching to make them work are because Gentile Christians have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? When we determined that the law and the prophets were abolished and that the, no te- the Old Testament was no longer relevant, we also abolished all of God's patterns. These patterns are the context for understanding the New Testament. So when they're ignored, we go off on tangents, even if there is a nugget of truth buried somewhere underneath it all. We'll start Leviticus 24 next time.